Well, because that song is true, let's now go to the Lord and pray and ask for His help. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. We praise You as the just and holy one. And we praise You as the justifier of sinners who have faith in Jesus. We thank You for Your Son. We praise You for Your plan of redemption. That sinners like us could be with You forever. Lord, we pray that You would pour Your Spirit out upon us now. Be our helper so that this time would be profitable. We pray that the Gospel of Your Son would be incredibly clear to us today. We pray that You would give us faith to trust those promises that you've made to us in Christ. And we pray that you would even use this time to make us more like him. We pray that everybody in this room and everybody who will hear this sermon, we pray that we would believe. And in believing that we would have life in the name of the Son. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, there is a lot uh, to get to today. Today was a, especially this week was an especially agonizing uh, sermon prep time for me uh, in trying to determine what not to say, what not to leave out. And so I, I'm going to make my introduction very brief uh, for, that, for that purpose. Last week I acknowledged the, the sharp elbows that this letter to the Galatians has, the fact that it is a book that really is direct in the ways that it goes about defending the truth of the gospel. The Apostle Paul, the writer of this letter, doesn't mince words often. It's not an argument that's difficult to follow. It's very straightforward. It's very blunt at times. And he is throwing those sharp elbows, so to speak, because the truth of the gospel mattered to him. And the truth of the gospel matters for you and for me. If we get the gospel wrong, if we don't understand rightly how sinners could ever be reconciled to the holy God of the universe, we've got no shot. If we get the gospel wrong in this local church, anything else, frankly, that we get right will be an accident. It's primary that we would understand the biblical gospel, the biblical good news. And so, in the, the spirit of the letter, I, I hope in a good way to throw some bows today, to defend the truth of the gospel today. I hope to do that every time um, that, that we open God's Word and certainly when we open a letter like this. But my aims today are two, really two. And we're going to tell you what those are. Uh, this isn't the, the point, this, this isn't the structure of the sermon, so to speak. But I aim to do two things. I want to defend the clarity of the gospel today because it's what Paul does in this passage. And in doing that, I, I want us to think about how we can defend the gospel as a church. Like what, what needs to be on our radar screen in order to guard the gospel? And then secondly, I want us to cause, or excuse me, I want to cause you and, and me to evaluate the ways we think about the Christian life in light of the gospel. So evaluate how we think about the Christian life in light of the gospel. That's sort of my second aim. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I hope that you do, go ahead and open them up to the book of Galatians. Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. 
Uh, so you'll find that we have made our ways into the Pauline epistles. If you're not familiar with how the Bible hangs together in the New Testament, you have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four stories of the life and the death of Jesus Christ, His earthly ministry. Then you have the book of Acts in which the, the apostles are establishing the church. And then after that you have the epistles in which really the Gospel is unpacked and the life of the church is unpacked for us. And the letters that start... Uh, after the book of Acts are the letters written by the Apostle Paul. And they're arranged longest to shortest, beginning with Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and then Galatians. And that's where we find ourselves today. So we are going to be looking today at Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And so I'm now going to read God's word for us. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James... He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So what I want to do in part one of the sermon is just to consider the text and what's going on in it. Straightforwardly. We're going to observe it and try to understand it together. So remember in the context of the letter what Paul has been arguing for. He's been defending his authority and the, uh, the truth of his gospel uh, but at first, he's got to deal with the accusations that are being made against him by his opponents that are trying to undermine his ministry. So he's been arguing that, one, he's not preaching the gospel he's preaching in order to please people. He's also argued, secondly, that he's not preaching a man-made gospel, but the gospel that God revealed to him. And then thirdly, he has been telling us, and last week we thought about this, that his gospel is in accord with the Jerusalem apostles and what they're teaching. And so today we're going to see that even maybe upping the ante a little bit, Paul is going to have a confrontation with another apostle, Peter. So Cephas in your text is another name of Peter. It's the same man. And we're going to see that Paul demonstrates that his doctrine, even in a confrontation with Peter, his doctrine is going to prove Peter to be in the wrong in this particular circumstance. So Paul is going to demonstrate that the Galatian Christians can certainly trust his gospel because it is authoritative and true. So in the text, we, we would understand that Peter, Cephas, was living like a Gentile before certain Christians from Jerusalem came. Well, what does that mean, that he was living like a Gentile? It doesn't mean that he was living in out-and-out out sin, but what it means is that he was not living like a Jew. He was not living under the code of the Mosaic law. And things in particular view that would have been very observable would be things like the Sabbath, things like circumcision, things like purity laws, ceremonial washings, food laws, things of that nature, right? Those things would have been obvious even to the, the lay person in observing the life of Peter, what it used to look like and what it now looks like in light of what Christ accomplished. And so we read, though, that in verse 12, when certain believers, certain men came from James, James being an apostle in Jerusalem, when people came from Jerusalem to Antioch, Peter's behavior changes. 
It changes dramatically. These believers that came from Jerusalem would have been of the circumcision party. We read that at the end of verse 12. Literally, it would have been rendered of circumcision. It means they're Jewish. They're Jewish believers is, I think, how we should understand that. And so these would have been, obviously, individuals converted out of Judaism. They would have been individuals that thought that Christians still needed to observe the law. That they still needed to live like Jews in one sense. And so perhaps what's going on, it seems, is that Peter, in some way, like we do, is struggling with fear of man. He's struggling with, okay, what are these Jewish believers, these circumcision party believers, what are they going to think? What are they going to say? What are they going to do if they see me living like a Gentile and not like a Jew? And I want you to remember that in this conversation, remember that Galatians is written 20 years after the death of Christ. This is not long. This is a unique era in redemptive history. Things are being sorted out in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is before, as I said last week, I think we should understand this to be taking place before the Jerusalem Council even happens in Acts chapter 15. So we should read this era of redemptive history in light of that reality, that it's a developing process, that at some point it's more firmed up in terms of the life of the church, the clarity of the gospel, things of that nature. And so a question we need to ask ourselves is, all right, what's the big deal? What's the issue here? What's Paul worked up about? The issue, I think it's clear in the passage, is not simply that Peter is associating with Gentiles. The issue is that is not even that he's, he's living like them, necessarily. The issue in particular here is, is the question of, of the way he's eating. He's eating with them. We understand that. What, what, what that would mean is that he's not just sitting at the table with Gentiles. He's eating like they do. He's eating unclean food, in other words. He's not... He's not observing food laws. He's not eating kosher. So that's the rub that exists in the text. But the issue at the heart of this is not primarily a social issue. There are some who will read this passage and even this letter of Galatians and will say that the primary issue that Paul has is the fact that Jewish believers are alienating Gentile believers. That's not the issue at heart. The real issue in this passage today and in this letter of Galatians is an issue of the truth of the gospel. That's what Paul is concerned with. He is concerned with how a sinful person is justified before holy God. And so Peter has changed his behavior in light of these believers from Jerusalem coming down. And so he's now living like a Jew again. He withdraws himself from Gentiles. He starts to observe some of these Tradition, some of these laws that he had been no longer observing because of what Christ had accomplished. And we see in verse 13 that the rest of the Jews, I would understand that to mean the Jewish Christians in Antioch, the rest of them follow his lead. And then we read that even Barnabas, who is Paul's right-hand man in ministry, who is proclaiming the gospel of the Gentiles alongside Paul, even Barnabas is led astray by the hypocrisy of Peter and these Jewish Christians. And so we see that Paul calls what Peter and the other Jews are doing, he calls it hypocrisy because he understands that Peter's actions and the actions of these other Jewish believers convey something that's false. <coughs> Their actions are lying about the truth. In doing what they're doing, they are conveying 
that in order to be justified, in order to really be good with God, observance of the law is necessary. That's what their actions are communicating. So this is the real issue. To eat or to drink a certain food or not is not the issue. The issue is the requirement piece. It's just like we talked about last week with respect to circumcision. To be circumcised or not, that's fine. But to give people the idea that circumcision is necessary for salvation is wrong. To eat pork or not, who cares? I don't care. But the issue is, do you require a kosher diet, observance of food laws for righteousness? That's the issue. What is required for righteousness is the rub here as far as the Apostle Paul is concerned. The truth of the gospel is that righteousness comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ apart from any work of the law, apart from any observance of the law. And we're going to see explicitly next week that's right where Paul goes. You're like, bro, how do you know that's what's the issue? Because in verse 15 and 16, Paul's going to go on to say, that we know that no person is justified by works of the law. Nobody. There is no room for law keeping in the justification conversation. The reconciliation with God conversation. No room whatsoever. Because where there is, the Apostle Paul knows this. And you need to know this. And I need to know this. That where there is any trust in works, there cannot be proper trust in Jesus. Where there is any trust in works, there cannot be proper trust in Christ. Those things are mutually exclusive. You cannot trust works even a little bit and have appropriate, saving, justifying faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knows that. What Peter is doing and what these Jewish believers are doing doesn't matter what they eat in terms of their conscience. But you are leading people astray in making them think that somehow this is a requirement that they would eat a particular way. So that's why in verse 14, Paul says that the conduct of Peter and these other Jewish Christians was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter, brothers, sisters, you're not living in step with the truth of the gospel. You're acting like works plays a part in this. You're acting like your diet plays a part in this. And there are people who are impressionable around you who are being led astray all over the place. And this can't happen. So I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So I said to Cephas before them all. It's a public confrontation. Awkward. Paul sees that Peter and these other Jews were acting in a way that was hypocritical. That word hypocrisy is in the text twice. That word literally means to play act, to wear a mask, to play a role. And there are several kinds of hypocrisy. Right? It manifests itself in a number of different ways. But I wonder if you've ever thought about the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus and Paul, let's just take those two guys, men we respect, amen, uh, those two guys, Jesus and Paul, what's the hypocrisy? What kind of hypocrisy did they go after with the most passion and vigor? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. In this particular context, we have an illustration of it. 
It's the kind of hypocrisy that says to live in a certain way, to behave in a certain way, is what it is to know God. That's the lie that Paul is going after. To do this and not do that is what it is to be a Christian. To do this and not do that, to keep these rules, to behave this way, is what it is to know the Lord. That's what Jesus goes after. That kind of external religiosity kind of righteousness is what Christ sets the grenade on the table time and time again and pulls the pin and lets it explode. And there's shrapnel everywhere. That's what Christ goes after and that's what Paul is going after in this text. The hypocrisy of religiosity. Doing these things and leading people to think that the doing is the essence of true religion. And leading people to think that the doing is the essence of salvation. And it's not. This hypocrisy is bad enough, as I already stated, that Barnabas, my goodness, a minister of the gospel is led astray. It's a serious business. So Paul, in his confrontation in verse 14, what does he say to Peter? Basically, he's like, hey, bro, look, if you live like a Gentile, even though you're a Jew, you're a Jew, you're living like a Gentile, how in the world can you convey, how in the world can you do anything that would make Gentiles think that they need to live like Jews in order to be saved? Say that again. How could you, Peter, being a Jew yourself, living like a Gentile, because you know that that's fine, how could you then lead people to think that they've got to live like a Jew in order to be saved? How could you do that? That's the confrontation. Martin Luther says this, and I think he's absolutely right. He talks about Peter and the other Jewish Christians, or maybe even Peter particularly. In this instance, right, in this instance where Peter went astray, Luther says of him, he preached the gospel, but through his hypocrisy, he established the law. And in the establishment of of the law, the gospel is abolished. So, I'm going to say that again. He preached the gospel, but through his hypocrisy, he established the law. And the establishing of the law is the abolishing of the gospel. We've talked about this before. It's an all or nothing proposition, right? You uphold the law in terms of, not as a guide, we've thought about that a lot, and we'll think about that more next time. You uphold the law for righteousness in any measure, Christ is of no use to you. It's all or nothing. So Peter, by his actions and the other Jews with him, is blurring the distinction between the law and the gospel. And he's persuading other people that essentially they've got to be justified by the gospel and the law together. And that's the problem. And so Paul's concern is that Jew and Gentile alike are going to be led astray by this. It's not just that he's concerned for Gentiles, right? He's concerned for Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Well, what do I mean? With respect to Jewish Christians, the concern would be, Peter, look, man, any suspicion that these guys had, these Jewish Christians had, about circumcision or keeping the law that they did their entire lives until they heard the gospel, any suspicion they had about that has now been confirmed by you. And you are, in one sense, leading them back to Moses rather than leading them to Christ. But then the concern, obviously, with the Gentile believers 
is that they're being given an occasion, they're being given a reason to think that, hey, hey, maybe faith in Jesus isn't enough for righteousness. Maybe faith in Jesus isn't enough for righteousness. I mean, after all, Peter, he's an apostle. He was eating with us. He was living like us. We, he was telling us, and Paul's telling us, that we're justified, we're saved by faith in Christ alone, not by works. But now, some Jewish Christians come down from Jerusalem, and Peter flips the script on us. These Jewish Christians, by the way, like we're mindful of the fact that Christianity started there, you know, where it came from, these people are coming down, and now Peter is not eating with us anymore. He's withdrawn himself from us. He's living differently now. He's observing laws. He's living like a Jew. Maybe, maybe keeping the laws necessary. Maybe that's necessary. That's Paul's concern. That these Gentile believers would be led astray that way. And this, this closing observation, I think, needs to be made. I've already mentioned the fact that this was a unique era of redemptive history in which things are being hammered out. And that's important that we remember that. But it's another, another important thing that we would observe here that we best remember is that apostles of God sin too. Apostles go astray too. Right? It's not that Peter or Paul are without sin. Now when they're inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Holy Scripture, they're not making mistakes. God sees to that in the way that He sovereignly like, superintends that process. But in terms of their lives... There's nothing inspired in the, in, the, in, the, in the era about their lives. They got it wrong. So accounts like this, they're in the Scripture for a number of reasons. I mean, obviously, for our instruction. They're in the Scripture for the clarification of the Gospel and right doctrine and all those things. And it's right. We would consider that. But it's good to observe that passages like this, they're there for comfort in a way. That as you're mindful of your own failures and you're disappointed in your own Straying, like Peter, Peter strayed here. There's comfort in that. The Lord's kind. The Bible is full of imperfect people who have been saved by the grace of God. Peter is a debtor to mercy just like you and just like me. So now I want to move on into a, a second part of the sermon as we're thinking about the truth of the gospel and Paul's concerns and all of these things. I, I want us for a moment to think about guarding the truth of the gospel, the clarity of the gospel at CBC. If that's what Paul's worked up for, that the gospel would be guarded in every circumstance. I think it's clear that he cares about that. It's good that we would care about that and that we would make the gospel as clear as it could possibly be in this local church. So to start us in thinking about these things, I want to give us some categories that that need to be in our minds, that need to be on our radar screens. And I pray this is useful for you. I pray it's, it's useful for us. So first, just in thinking about the, the state of the broad evangelical church in America, it's accurate to say that the evangelical church is full of legalism. The evangelical church is full of moralism. Legalism being the idea that you can do certain things in order to merit righteousness. Moralism meaning that you can do things to contribute to your standing before God. 
the evangelical church is certainly therapeutic, often in its emphasis, wanting to make people feel better about their lives or whatever. And in the evangelical church, I think it's quite obvious that there exists a lot of what I would call this God and country nonsense, right? Where we have blended and synthesized religion and politics. And all of this stuff is how you end up with this kind of legalistic thing, but also this kind of moralistic, therapeutic stuff. This is how you end up with an evangelical church in America that is oftentimes in the minds of many, like as the public looks at the church, the sadness is that they associate the evangelical church more with things like the Republican Party and prohibitions on alcohol or even the pro-life movement. That's as good as that is. They associate us more with that than they do the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how does that happen? There's a number of things. Lest that happen here. Lest things that are good but not primary become primary, there are things that we've got to have on our radar screen. So the first is this. We need to be aware of how we see ourselves naturally. I'm going to explain what I mean. We've got to realize that we tend to think really well of ourselves naturally. So across evangelicalism, there's an epidemic in how people understand their fallen condition. There's not a robust enough understanding of what happened to us in the fall. So I'm going to use a big theological word in a second that I don't like to always use, but I'm going to define my terms. Charles Spurgeon, famous Baptist preacher, the Prince of Preachers, preached in England in the 19th century, said this, we don't have to be taught this thing called Pelagianism. And I'm going to explain what that is. So Pelagius was a British monk lived in the 4th, 5th century, and he was famous, he is famous in church history for teaching that human beings are born essentially morally neutral, uncorrupted by Adam and the fall. And that the only reason we would ever go into sin is because we have poor examples to follow. But that we do, in and of ourselves, we can choose good or evil. We can do good and choose to follow God in and of ourselves, and be saved, or we can choose sin. We can choose wickedness. So in that sense, he was a huge advocate of the unhindered, unbound, free will of man. He was condemned as a heretic, rightly so. The Bible could not be more clear that something tragic happened to you and me in Adam when he and Eve fell. But we naturally think We come into this world believing that we're basically good. We come into this world believing that we're at worst morally neutral. Nobody's got to be convinced of that. So people naturally think. What we've got to be convinced of is what the Bible says about our fallenness. We tend to think naturally. I mean, how often do you hear this? With just a little bit of good instruction, right? We can be put back on the right path. We think that we can do stuff. Even before God, we think that we can do stuff to somehow earn His favor. What is not communicated rightly is that every single human being, apart from the grace of God, can do nothing. Nothing. 
eternally or spiritually helpful for themselves. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. That's Bible. But it's not what we naturally think. And so, when you have this view of yourself that you can kind of make of yourself what you will spiritually, and that you can do stuff to earn God's favor, it's not a mystery that in many churches across this land, people are just told to go do stuff. Go be a good person. Go follow the Lord. It can't be done apart from the sovereign grace of God that makes it possible. That's one thing. We've got to keep that in view. Second piece. It's very much related to the first piece. There's some underestimation that happens in the broad evangelical church. There's an underestimation of the holiness of God, the greatness of God, and of the depth of our sin. There's an underestimation of the holiness of God, greatness of God, depth of our sin. And so, what's the result of that? The result of that, I would say, is that we don't take sin seriously enough. And I'm talking about sin now in terms of what we have to be rescued from. We don't understand how bad it is. Brandon and I, we talk like this regularly, brother, when people will say in conversation, it's like, man, I didn't realize that I was so bad. And it's like, friend, it's way worse than you even imagined. It is far worse than you ever thought. But, see, broadly, this is underestimated because God's holiness is reduced to this manageable thing. And God's greatness is reduced to this kind of comfortable size. And the depth of our sin is minimized. And so we forget that God is holy and just. And that even His love is a holy love. God, God, do you ever think about this? God does not love things that are wicked. He doesn't. Now, that's going to, you're like, okay, but I'm a sinner, brother. But that's where we have to come to the fact that the promise of the gospel is that God, because of His love, through Christ, is making us lovely. God, through the gospel, is making us pure and blameless. We've already been declared righteous, and we're being made righteous. He does justify the ungodly, but in the way that He saves, He's perfectly holy. And so then, when you start to think in these terms, stuff kind of starts to fall into place. Right? What do I mean by that? Well, you start to realize that a great sinner, which you are, needs a great Savior which God has provided in Jesus. But when you don't think this way, when you don't think in these terms, the greatness and the holiness of God and the depth of my sin, the gospel and the cross and Jesus become ho-hum, kind of small. And it's easy to then believe the lie that you naturally want to believe anyway, that you just kind of save yourself with God's help. You think, though, holiness and greatness of God and the depth of my sin, and you're just like, seems obvious to me. Seems obvious to me that if I was ever going to be saved, God had to do it. I couldn't do that. It's the gospel that Jesus has accomplished what we never could. But oftentimes the ridiculous and heartbreaking situation is that many people leave churches and leave having listened to a sermon that gave them the impression that they could do it. 
Third thing that I, I want us to have on our radar screen in order to guard the gospel is that the gospel can never be assumed. The gospel can never be assumed or taken for granted. I think it's obvious that in the American church, there has been a season of time where the gospel has been taken for granted, assumed, and then largely lost in many contexts. It's been said by many people that one generation takes the gospel for granted, next generation assumes it, next generation loses it. It's gone. That's the natural way things go. So whenever you start to hear language like this, you need to get really concerned. I'm about to tell you. Whenever you hear language like what I'm about to say, it needs to be like, wah, wah, wah. this is bad. This is bad. Like code red, you know, we got to get this straight. And if you ever hear it here, talk to us. So you hear people say this. Of course we believe Jesus lived and died and was raised to save sinners. Of course we believe the gospel. But what we really need is this. Fill in the blank. Of course we believe the gospel. We got the gospel. What we really need is pick your thing. Mission trips to dig wells and build houses. We need community groups. We need engaging youth groups that are hip and cool. We need great music. We need great facilities. We need great amenities. We need missional incarnational communities. We need DNA. We need whatever. Like, and, and don't get me wrong. The stuff that I've just said, I, I love that stuff. That stuff's good. Like mission trips and youth groups and community groups and music and DNA and Bible reading plans. You know, that's great. It's not the gospel, right? So whenever you hear people talking in those terms, get really concerned. It's really good in a local church. It's necessary, I would even say probably on the fly, I don't know. It's really good for you to have ways and for me to have ways to live out our discipleship, right? Amen. But what we can never forget is that our discipleship has always and is always and must always, in the way it's communicated, be anchored in what Jesus has done for us. Amen. Has to be. It has to be anchored in the reality, like I said a moment ago, that He has accomplished what we never could. And if those things aren't clear, the gospel gets blurred. The gospel gets confused. So whenever people say, we know what the gospel is, but now let's, let's move on to the more pressing matters of the Christian life. Let me say that. When they say, yeah, we know what the gospel is, we got the gospel, we, of course we trust Christ. But now we need to move on to the more pressing matters of the Christian life. When people talk like that, they are swinging a door wide open for moralism and legalism to become rampant in the church. 2,000 years of church history would prove that that's true. So we must never assume or move on from the gospel. You've heard me say that many times. That question of how does the gospel apply to me now that I'm already in Christ, that is a question we ought to ask ourselves every day. Next piece. And please understand me. I cannot possibly nuance everything I say. <laughs> in every sermon, or I preach for three hours every Sunday. So if, you're, if you have any questions or wrestlings with anything I'm saying, just talk to me. Talk to me. Next thing, four, I guess this is number four. I don't have a number to my album. Number four that I would want us to have on our radar screen in terms of guarding the gospel is we need to be aware of what I would call easy listening legalism. Easy listening legalism, like in teaching and preaching. 
So I, I want you like antennas up for this every Sunday. So think about the kind of teaching and preaching that's prevalent in the, in the American church. What does it sound like? What's it look like? It's this kind of stuff. It's like, well, here's how um, to have a better marriage. Here's how to get control of your finances. Here's how to battle depression. Or here's seven steps to you know, better parenting or whatever it is. So that, that's the kind of stuff that is preached Sunday after Sunday after Sunday in most churches. And I would call that kind of preaching, I'm going to explain what I mean. I, I, I think that kind of preaching is a soft, easy listening kind of legalism often. Because what is that stuff? What is that preaching? Here's seven steps to a better you. It's all about you, right? It's all about you and then what you need to do so that you can have the life that you would like to have. It's all about you and what you're doing. But this kind of soft sort of legalism, it, it's a problem because it turns us in on ourselves, not outside of ourselves, to Christ. Fundamentally. There's a place to examine yourself, of course. But when preaching primarily turns you inward about what you are doing, uh, how things are going with you, and you're obsessed with those things, and you're not turned outward to look to Christ, what He's accomplished for you, reliance upon the Spirit of God and the grace of God, that is soft, easy listening legalism. And the problem is that that stuff is so prevalent, it's kind of like white noise in the American church. We don't even hear it. We, can't even, we don't even see that it's wrong. We don't hear that it's bad. Like, I pray that in our church and churches like ours that we've got tools of discernment. When we hear that stuff, it's kind of like, you know, I just listened to a 45-minute sermon that told me a lot about what I need to do, but it didn't really tell me much at all about what God has done. I hope that registers. It's like, that's not a gospel sermon. The message in that kind of teaching is, is often this. It's not, let me say it's not. It's not that Jesus is your only hope. It's that you can have more hope if you do these things. It's a problem. It's a problem. We've got to have that on our radar screen. Fifthly, I think this is the last one. Yeah, this is the last part of this section. So number five, what we need to have on our radar screen is this. That the, the biblical teaching, the biblical doctrine, the biblical truth that Christ has fulfilled the law in our place is at best assumed and often flat out neglected in the American church. So we talk a lot, I'm going to say that again, the teaching that Christ has fulfilled the law perfectly in our place is often at best assumed, if not flat out neglected in the American church. What I mean by that is this. The cross is preached. Praise God. Many churches preach the cross. That Jesus atoned for our sins. But what's often, just like to me, like loudly, obviously, conspicuously missing, is that you're not telling me about where my righteousness comes from. You're telling me about how my sin was atoned for, how my wrath was satisfied, that I deserve. But then where does righteousness come from? God requires that. And that's where Christ's perfect life, His obedience in our place, accomplishes it. And I think in many places, in many churches, that's assumed, if not just neglected altogether. And so, the message that many people 
across this country in churches on Sunday, they either explicitly are taught this or they implicitly understand it from their pastor is that Jesus died for your sins and gave you a clean slate. And now what you need to do is go out there and not disappoint God. Jesus died for you, gave you a clean slate. Now go out there and don't disappoint God. That is sadly what is passed off as gospel preaching in this country. So we need to have our antennas up for things like that. Because as the gospel has always been described, from the church fathers to now, the gospel is the great exchange. Well, what does that mean? The great exchange means that Christ takes our sin, but then we get His righteousness. You don't have both. you got no gospel. So have this stuff on your radar screen. And I think those things, if we are aware of trends and things that are normal in our day, and we are aware of how the gospel can be blurred and confused, it will help us to protect it. So the last piece I, that I want to do today, just truth and advertising, I had even another section and I knew I couldn't get it in. So I, um, I wanted to talk about the, the place of the law in the life of the believer today. Because this stuff kind of begs the question, well, what about the law? But I figured in verses 15 and 16, which is my next sermon in Galatians that will happen in April, that's straight up. We know that people are justified by works of the law. So I thought I could probably do that then and talk about the place of the law in the, in the Christian's life. So come back next time for that. Uh, but what I want to think about finally, just in the last few minutes that we have together today, is a struggle that I think a church like ours can have. So the stuff that I just described is something that in God's grace and kindness I don't think is a problem here. I pray that it always remains that way. We need to be aware so that it doesn't become one. But I don't think it's a problem here, those things I just said. But what I'm about to talk about is probably going to offend some, um, and I'm okay with that. Talk to me at the door. I don't mean to offend anyone. Um, but this is an area, there's two things that I want to talk about briefly that I think a church like ours can, not meaning to, with the best of intentions, we can blur and confuse the gospel. And this is really when it pertains to the Christian life. And what it looks like. So the first, first thing I'm going to talk about. I'll give you a heading for it. I wasn't planning to. I think we tend. Myself included. We tend to codify everything. And I'm going to tell you what I mean. We tend to codify everything. In the Christian life. So when we read or write books on. Spiritual disciplines or family worship. Or parenting or marriage or finances. Or whatever it is. You fill in the blank. What we tend to do. I'm saying we, what we tend to do is that we take things that are really good suggestions, we take things that are really good wisdom, and we turn them into a kind of law. We take wisdom and we make it code. And so we elevate really good suggestions to the status of a law that we must adhere to. So... Instead of leaving this stuff in the wisdom realm, in the helpful realm, even in the common sense realm sometimes, it becomes a yoke that we put on our own necks and it becomes a yoke that we put on the necks of other believers that we know and love. And so what I'm talking about here is, is the kind of thing where you read a really good book on parenting and you're really helped by it. And then not meaning to, you, you start kind of making a law for yourself to kind of live to according to that book you read 
And then you start giving it out to other people. I'm not saying don't do this, but you start giving it out to other people kind of like, this is the way. This is the way to parent your kids. Or you get on a Bible reading plan, it's like, this is the way to read the Bible. This is the way that quiet times need to look. This is the way you need to think about marriage. This is the way even to do church, like in some of the realms where we would understand there's freedom. Whenever we start turning things like that into the only way to be a Christian husband, the only way to be a Christian wife or mother, the only way to be a Christian baker, or the only way to be a Christian astronaut or whatever, that's a problem. And so we can tend to do that in a church like this. It's great that we would read good books. It's great that we would think in terms of wisdom and counsel and that we would be doing that all the time. But then it's important that we understand that there are often liberty in things like this. That you don't have to be reading your Bible at 5.30 a.m. every morning to be a faithful follower of Christ. It's okay to listen to the Bible on audio in your car. The Bible says meditate on the Word of God day and night. It doesn't say how you must do it. Right? That's all I'm trying to get at. The Bible tells us that we are to teach our children and to train them in righteousness and to discipline them faithfully. But it doesn't prescribe you know, a 39-step code as to how that's to be done. Next piece. So that's the codifying piece. We don't want to do that because when we... So I'm staying in the codifying. Sorry, I'm not going next piece yet. So we don't want to do this. Why? Why, friends? Because when you start doing this stuff and you start requiring this is the way that this has to be done, it can confuse the gospel. If we're not careful, we're not careful. A Christian must parent, according to Paul Tripp, my favorite guy, right? You know, man, I mean, I've got my stuff, right? We just all have to check that. Second piece, a way that we can go astray and maybe confuse the gospel, not meaning to, is that we tend to want to quantify everything. So we codify and we quantify everything. What do I mean? Basically this. We tend to think of our spiritual lives in terms of what we do. Even us. We're people of the gospel. Right? We're all about sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, solus Christus, Christ alone. We're all, we're all about that. Amen. Praise God. But we tend to then think about our spiritual health in terms almost completely of what we're doing. I've asked, I mean, and I have no particular individual in mind. But this has happened in the last year, a number of times. I often will ask the question, how are you doing spiritually? How are you doing spiritually? And the first only thing sometimes, and the first five things typically that are responded with are, well, I'm, I'm, here's, I'm reading this, and I'm doing this, and I'm read that, and doing that. And I'm kind of like, okay, I appreciate those things, and I think it's wonderful that you're reading those things and doing those things, but you really didn't answer my question. You know, how you're doing spiritually is deeper than that. It's underneath that. Are you, are you trusting Christ or are you really having to fight for faith right now? Are you, do you, I mean, are you struggling really hard with temptation and sin? Does it feel uniquely difficult right now to flee from this particular thing? Are you struggling with despair? Those are the kinds of questions we're really asking when we ask, how are you doing? And it's wonderful to talk about the ordinary means and reading the Bible and prayer and those things. We have to keep them in the right place. So our tendency is to want to quantify all that stuff and gauge our spiritual health on this kind of meter. Well, here's how many days in a row I've read the Bible, so I'm doing good there. 
Here's how my, I perceive my prayer life to be going, so I'm good there. Here's how many books of theology I've read this year, so I'm doing pretty good there. Here's how many podcasts I've consumed this week, so I'm doing pretty good there. Haven't missed DNA in six weeks, so I'm doing pretty good there. And that's what we do. This is not to say neglect the ordinary means. By all means, use them. And I don't, I'm not saying this for the wrong reason. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I'm not going to say it ever again in this sermon series. You're looking at a guy who most every morning of his life is up reading my Bible at 5, 5.30 in the morning. All right, so I'm not saying don't do it. Okay? I'm just saying think well about how you quantify everything. And I do this too. And so even in our battle with sin, friends, think about this. When you're assessing how is my fight with sin going, we tend to only think in quantifiable terms. Like, how long has it been since I struggled with that? We tend to have an all-or-nothing approach. Well, I screwed up this week, so it's all done. And those kinds of things are not helpful. Those kinds of things end up placing a kind of bondage on us that I don't think God intends at all. Take sin seriously. Trust God. Apply the means. Love each other. Flee from temptation and flee to Jesus when you fail. So in thinking about all of these things, the goal again is to guard the gospel and make it really clear what the gospel is. The church has often been described, and I think this is accurate, it's it's almost like the church is, think of an engagement ring. The church is the band and the setting, right? It's not the diamond. The church holds a diamond called the gospel. It holds a diamond called the Lord Jesus offered for sinners. And so what we want to do in our church, we want to glorify God by exalting Jesus and upholding that gospel. And if anybody's ever going to be saved, realistically, we need to do that. It's for the good of people and for the honor of God. We don't want to do anything, I trust, as a church that would ever make the gospel less clear. We want to make the gospel we want to make Christ more clear so that sinners would be saved, so that God would be glorified. And it's, it's obvious to me, I trust it is to you, that, that we're always prone to want to go back to what we can do. I want to do that. We can tend to want to go back and place some measure of trust in what we can bring to the table. But in the sake of the clarity of the gospel, for the sake of the clarity of the gospel, for the sake of the glory of Christ, we must not do that. So to that end, let's pray that we would trust God, that we would guard the gospel, and that we would honor Him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for this time that we've had to look to the Bible. We pray that You would take the things that we consider today and the things that are right and true, we pray that You would drive them deep into our hearts. And the things that are not helpful, God, we pray would dissipate like a mist and we wouldn't even remember them when we walk out of here. We pray, Lord, that we would be people of the gospel, that we would be people who cling to Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection for us. We pray that we would never trust in anything other than Him. We pray, Lord, that the gospel that we aim to preach would save many sinners in this area. We pray that you would grow our church and that you would grow our church with people that are coming to faith as well as believers who want a church like this. Lord, we pray for your help. We pray for your protection. And we do pray that you would be doing your sanctifying work by your grace in our lives. We pray we would be faithful 
to apply the means that you've given and to encourage one another in the way. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.